Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. with a genre-defying musical fluidity. His film scores have received critical acclaim while he remains active and relevant in the concert, theater, and dance worlds. Jeff's evocative score and theme for House of Cards received four Emmy Award nominations and recently won for Outstanding Score, bringing Beale's Emmy tally to 15 nominations and four statues. Other lauded series and film scores include HBO's Carnival, Rome, and the documentaries Blackfish and Queen of Versailles, and the dramas Pollock and Appaloosa. Jeff's orchestral works have been commissioned and performed by major orchestras, choruses, chamber groups, and soloists across the globe. Born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, Jeff graduated from the Eastman School of Music, where he and his wife Joan recently donated $2 million to the creation of the Beale Institute for Film, Music, and Contemporary Media. Hi, Jeff. It's such an honor to have you on One Symphony today. I wanted to start out with a little bit of your musical background. You have such a fascinating upbringing and past and kind of amalgamation of how you got into music and composing. Your grandmother accompanied for silent films, which is a phenomenal genre that we're starting to rediscover in many ways these days, but also played for you a lot of Miles Davis, which I assume inspired you to play trumpet. You wrote your first trumpet concerto at age 17. You talk about being inspired in the midst of Rite of Spring to write music. And I can't tell you how many great artists I've spoken with, composers, who were touched by that piece in some way at the beginning of their life. Um, can you just talk about how, you, how all of that and whatever else you want to share um, prepared you for a life of concert and film composing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, when you're young, you know, some of these almost random decisions you might make can affect every aspect of your life. And really everything you mentioned really goes back to the trumpet, which is my primary instrument. And so I was in maybe the third or fourth grade. My father took me to a school assembly. This is in Northern California during a time in California when the music programs were actually quite excellent. Uh, this is before Proposition 13 passed in California. We had excellent classroom music. So they had this assembly where everybody sort of demonstrated all the musical instruments. So that somebody played a saxophone and a trombone, a flute and clarinet. And this guy got up and played the trumpet. I just kind of looked at my dad and said, that's the one, you know. <laughs> I said, okay. You know, I, I don't know if I knew at the time my father played trumpet when he was young. So, oh, uh, and he didn't tell uh, you that. 
I don't can't remember if he told me when went to the assembly or not. Okay. Um, and interestingly enough, my you know my son Henry, who's a wonderful jazz bass player and went to the University of North Texas, started out as a trumpet player uh, through grade school and high school, and was also an excellent trumpet player. My wife is a trumpet player, so I guess everybody in my life has connected to the trumpet wow. in some way. <laughs> so it started out with the trumpet, and um, I I would say there were kind of like two epiphanies for me as a young musician that really lit a fire. The first one was really around what you were relating about my grandmother. She didn't influenced me to play the trumpet. But when she saw that I was a trumpet player, she was a, a great improviser and could just play, sit down and play anything on the piano. And she's the one that gave me these Miles Davis records when I was, you know, didn't know who the heck Miles Davis was and completely blew my mind. And But as a musician, when I started, got into middle school and started playing in the jazz band and started improvising, that was when all the sort of light bulbs went off for me creatively. It's like, I just found that language of improvisation and an expression. I just felt like it was a, I was a kid in the candy store, you know? And um, that really, of course, led directly into the compositional side of things. You know, I was always sort of self-taught on the piano, but I was, we had a piano in the house. So I was always tinkering around on that. But then later on in high school, as you said, uh, I played in the Oakland Youth Symphony, an excellent youth orchestra. And I love classical music. And I was, by high school, I was definitely starting to compose and write pieces for the jazz band or whatever. And so, yeah, sitting in the trumpet section in the middle of the Rite of Spring, which is the first time I heard the piece was literally sitting in the middle of that brilliant orchestration. That's just when, man, I just, it all sort of coalesced, you know, my, my love of symphonic music, my love of storytelling. I mean, it wasn't obviously a film score, but all of Stravinsky's ballets are in some ways wonderfully pro programmatic and narrative pieces of music, you know. And so that idea of using music as a language to tell stories, I think that seed, that passion was planted at a very early age. And, and um you know, I went on from high school uh, to the Eastman School of Music, which ironically, we're at the same city that I'm now at because I just arrived here to conduct a premiere this week. Um, but nice. um, studied at the Eastman School of Music, went in as a trumpet player and composition major. And um, Eastman was a great school at the time. It still is because it was, you know, obviously conservatory level education, but also they had a jazz program. Uh, my mentor at the time, Raven Wright, also uh, taught a film scoring class and is so in my senior year, when I was sort of auditing all of the graduate courses, which were not part of my major, but was really what I was being sort of obsessed with as a young, young musician, um, I got to do my first little bit of film composing. So that was sort of the beginnings of all it. And it was, um, you know, my, my career has had a lot of different trajectories, I would say. One was this, with the trumpet, you know, out of, right out of college. I, I had won a lot of downbeat awards in, in college, and I was definitely sort of being pretty well recognized in that field. And I had a lot of aspirations as a jazz trumpet player and very fortunate to get uh, my first opportunities professionally out of college for record making some solo records for Island Records and some other labels and um, kept on composing. And then, but shortly, I would say in that first 10 years out of, out of school, I started getting opportunities to write for the screen. Wrote some of my early, early concert pieces, one of them a bass concerto. I wrote for a wonderful jazz bassist, John Patitucci, back in like, this is the late 80s before I even moved to Los Angeles. And then a lot of these threads musically, creatively, sort of came together in a few ways. I was out of Eastman, this was the mid 80s, and I was definitely interested in mental minimalism. This was the early days of the computer too. So I was very, I love technology. I still use it every day in my work. I mean, I'm old enough at 59 that I really started writing with a pencil and paper and now it's 
uh, mm. much more of a digital workflow. But I was fascinated with min minimalism as a musical language and um, the way in which that maybe connects to jazz or syncopation or groove in a way, in a way that a lot of Western concert music maybe hadn't for me in the past. So I was doing these sort of experimentations with I would what I would call as a, a, a recipe of like Americana and minimalism. And the first time I, I tried that, I really developed that language was in the bass concerto for John Patitucci. And then flash forward to around 1999 or 2000, I was hired to write a score for Ed Harris's film Pollock, which was really, I guess, you know, when you look at a career, how does a career develop? You know, that was one of those such lucky, lucky opportunities where um, I was able, the film was, you know, a small independent film at the time, but it went on to get a couple of Academy Award nominations for lead actor and supporting actress. And um, everybody in Hollywood saw it. Um, the reason I think about that film in context of the bass concerto was that the score to that movie was very much that sort of minimalism meets Americana language mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I think of the time I did it and you had, nobody had really heard that in a film score and in yeah. the way that maybe I did it in that film. So it really kind of put me on the map. A, a lot of a lot of people call. It got, gave me a relationship with HBO and a lot of great things came out of that. And there's one other trumpet connection I have to mention uh, before I finish this long. <laughs> career uh, career story, but Mark Isham, wonderful jazz trumpet mm -hmm. player, also wonderful composer. A lot of people know his music probably from various films. We became friends when I moved to Los Angeles. And of course the friendship was revolved initially and still is actually to this day, we're very good friends, revolved around our love of playing the trumpet, playing jazz trumpet. So Mark was the person who was not available uh, to write a score for Ed Harrison, actually recommended me originally to submit some music to that film, so. This idea of minimalism and scores are sort of a, the orchestra in some ways getting out of the way. It's an about face from the, the 20th century of, you know, Korngold and Max Steiner. And then of course, John Williams with these huge orchestral scores. But I, I really think that's cool that you brought that up. The idea of minimalism and Americana, like you don't really, I feel like you kind of spearheaded or you created that genre because I feel like that even takes you all the way to the house of cards. Um, you know, through through many of the other you know score show scores you've you've done. Can you talk about that idea of like like why does and of course Philip Glass, you know, which Absolutely. you probably were familiar with, yeah. and he did films too. But I mean, in two thousand with Pollock, this is this is an early introduction, you know, into that genre. So can you kind of talk about you know your dramatic intentions as a, as a composer and, and maybe um, how that's been effective for many other film scores now in the past 20 years. Yeah, and of course, you know, well, just connected forward to House of Cars, maybe start there, because that's such a co great compare and contrast with Pollock, because it's such a different type of story in a lot of ways, in the <laughs> sense that it's it's aspirational, but it's obviously the lead character is, a, is really a Machiavellian anti-hero. Pollock had his tragic side. He was definitely a bipolar alcoholic, but he was really 
and his bet on his best days, he was doing something really amazing as an artist, whereas a politician like Frank Underwood, I don't know what you can say that's aspirational about him other than that it's the American ideal, perhaps, in this strange world that we live in. But yeah, this, um, this idea of what I think it's very fascinating to me. I definitely, this has been a theme in my work. I believe that you, you need to write from your truth. You need to write from your experience. And, and listen, I'm an American. I grew up in California. The West was sort of my visual context of who I was and where I came from. You know, a lot of the family tree connects back to Idaho and some of the old West towns. And it's just, you're always, every family trip, you're seeing this great expanse. I mean, you're in Colorado. It's the same kind of mythology. So there is a sense of that language, which I really love around American music. Obviously, jazz is part of that as well. And it's certainly part of my language, the idea of improvisational gestures, I think are part of what Mm -hmm. makes the score to Pollock or the score to House of Cards work. But the other part of it is this idea, this connection almost to folk genres, which is, I think, present in both those scores in a way, the sort of hymn tune that gets turned into a not so uh, wonderful hymn tune in House of Cards, but it is sort of this this overture, this this sort of epic, epic shape, but that in it, at its heart has this sort of simple architecture around it. I love simplicity in music in general, not simple-minded. Mm-hmm. I often say it's a big difference between doing simple and simple-minded. And I think what inspires me compositionally is often things that have some element of simplicity to them, but somehow can also be profound or powerful or memorable. This is especially true of film music. Even John Williams, who I is right at the top of everybody's list. But, you know, the think of the Jaws theme. It's two notes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the basses and half steps. And really, I did. I guess I stole that because House of Cards, I wasn't, this is totally, you know, not intentional or, you know, the subconscious mind. But yeah, the bass line, it's, it's a minor third, two notes. Which, That's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it is the same thing. It's 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 the sharks in the water. It's the snakes in the grass, and which so, he stole from uh, Dvorak's Ninth Symphony. And I love that we all steal from each other. Of course, we do. That's yeah. You know, music yeah. is a continuum. It's a language that we all share. And I also love, you know, speaking of musical influences, I love, and this is probably connects more to my my love of extended jazz harmony and sophisticated chord structures. But I also a big fan of sort of the second Viennese school of early 20th century dissonance. Out, you know, Berg and Webern and yeah. Stravinsky. Of course, we already talked about and Bartok. And so, House of Cards, for example, was a great example where. That film, that that show was so dark, but also so so really intelligently written and sophisticated. It could really mm-hmm. support this very heady, what I would call PG thirteen chords in in film music. You know, like really. Uh, so the idea of really being able to explore those really dissonant sounds um, harmonically and thematically was that was a, I was a kid in the candy store getting <laughs> to write for that score. Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you think of that because I also think of that writing in that drama as it's like Macbeth. Right. It's so sophisticated and, and, and but not highbrow at the same time. It speaks to sort of everyone. So you would think that that sophistication, you know, on an intellectual level would need to be mirrored in the music. But in fact, you, you've done the opposite. And I also want to as long as we're talking about House of Cards, I just want to say that, you know, for me, like scores like, you know, The Walking Dead, Bear McCreary or Game of Thrones, uh, uh, Ramin Jawadi, it, it must be so difficult to write a, a, an original score, you know, to not only create the atmosphere for what's to come, but something I just feel like, like those, those are top three 
of all the intros that have been written in the past 20 or 30 years. And it's just, it's, I mean, people, and you know, there's new shows all the time and you see the show and you're like, okay, pretty good show. You know, I can't remember the theme song. I can't remember the main melody. And if you can't remember the theme song, I don't think that's a show that people are going to remember. And so I I just want to, while we're talking about that, I just want to applaud that. I'm sure many people have done it before, but just wanted to take a moment to say how, how just hyper effective that is and how, how genius um, that one minute and 30 seconds or whatever you, you made was. Oh, well, thank you. You know, and uh, those are also the one, other ones that you mentioned are fantastic as well. And I think one of the gifts uh, to us as composers in the last 20 years, for example, of what you could call premium cable or basic cable shows is that they rediscovered the power of, an, of a main title sequence. You know, I was very lucky with House of Cards that we had a minute and a half HBO <laughs> Uh, it's similar. I did a, I've, been, I've done a couple shows for HBO. I did not write the main title to Carnival, even though I scored the show, but I did the main title for yeah. Rome, which is another wonderful show on HBO. Yeah. Again, a minute and a half. Yeah. Ironically, uh, I won my first Emmy ever for the season one main title to the Tony Shalhoub show, Monk. Which, oh yeah, uh, Monk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was only, that was only on, my theme was replaced by a, by a Randy Newman song in the second season. That was well before I did House of Cards, but I would say, you know, it's I'm really glad you brought this whole idea of theme songs up and the, and the importance of their memorability, because I know when my my theme was removed from that first season of Monk, the fans like kind of went into riot mode. They were really upset. So it became a whole controversy. Wow. After they had made that decision, I was actually nominated and won that first Emmy. But the idea in which the audience nice. makes a connection emotionally, like you said so well, to a show through that opening sequence, I think it's so powerful and it really speaks to the cinematic language, the way music as a language speaks to us when we watch something. It gets to a different part of our brain and our memory. I love main title sequences, you know, uh, we, you know, I, I didn't watch it when it originally aired, but my wife and I, sometime when it was now available on streaming as everything is, we watched all of The Sopranos on HBO, which is a wonderful oh, yeah, show. Yeah. It actually doesn't have a composed mm-hmm. score, but it has a wonderful main title. And even though we were binging it, basically, we would always watch the main title because it's just kind of this time when you just settle yeah. in. And if yeah. it's a good combination <laughs> of images and music, it's just like this fun, fun little world that yeah. helps you just suspend disbelief. And, OK, I'm going to go into this world of this show now. You know, if you watch any film from the 30s, 40s, you know, they have the overture and then they have an intermission. I mean, I think maybe Quentin Tarantino does that, but um, I feel like an overture and an intermission now and then the end title is just gone. Right. You know, it's already auto the next thing. Yeah, that's a shame. I was really lucky. And I even in the early days of House of Cards, I think that they didn't have the skip credits thing. Yeah, that was at the beginning. Yeah. And for my HBO shows, it was great because they never preempted the credits. So for Carnival and Rome, for each of those episodes, I usually did a new main title based on whatever the score was for that particular episode. It was just fun. It was like a little, it wasn't an overture. It was like a exit music or something based on whatever you've just seen. Composers have varying degrees of say in larger issues in, in, in these kind of movies or shows. Can you talk about maybe the differences between like Netflix and HBO, or were you more involved in House of Cards than Rome, than Carnival? Obviously, it seems like Monk, you maybe that was earlier in your career, so maybe you weren't as involved. Can you talk about just the differences there? 
Yeah, I mean, it's always it's always a question of who's writing a check. I mean, this is a business, so you don't want to get fired, but you're there, you're hired for your artistic input and your taste. So I like a collaborative environment and I've been lucky in various uh, situations to have them to varying degrees, obviously, as you sort of intimated at. Now, House of Cards was especially fun because... You know, this was David Fincher as our showrunner for the whole first hmm. season. He didn't direct all the episodes, but he directed the first episode, two episodes. And this was early in the development of Netflix as a network. And I felt like I was making a little independent film where there was no studio, no executive producer. So it was just me and David Fincher and everybody's just getting out of his way because he's David Fincher. It's like, you know, wow. I mean, I'm, uh, he, he, he likes notes. I mean, he I know he showed early cuts to some other filmmakers. He has his respects and we all all artists want to have. A conversation. Mm-hmm. But that was really nice. I felt like David and I were really able to develop together alongside that 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 music. And I, I would say each of the shows that I'm really proud of, I've had a really great partner, whether that's Ed Harris as a director on Pollock and Appaloosa mm-hmm. or various producers on Rome. You know, I think every whenever you're able to do good work, it means that you're that the room is an, is a place where you're respected and you're not being micromanaged. I mean, music is especially Mm -hmm. hard for filmmakers to direct because even if you're musical, you can't really tell a composer what to write. You can give them direction though. You can give them emotional direction. So Mm -hmm. um, direction could be extremely useful to you if, 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 if it's given by people who have experience and know how to know how to talk to a composer. Of course, as composers, it's our job to parse the language of what somebody's saying about what they're feeling about Mm -hmm. music and, when it's necessary, mm-hmm. make adjustments or in the fun, more imaginary stave, hear, hear what their idea is and then try to create, you know, what that sound is. That's my probably my favorite part of the job is sort of the make believe part where it's just a concept. It's maybe a lot of a lot of things I've written start on the script. So maybe I read a script first and then you see it filmed. And, you know, it's it's like you're building this building, this house that's never been built before. So you get to design everything about it. And and each choice you make can be extremely important in terms of what you said earlier about the specificity of it, feeling like, oh, I know I'm in House of Cards or I know I'm in Game of Thrones or I know in whatever. Hopefully a show that or a movie that's that's well scored, it has an identity to it, a musical personality that that is consistent in some way. Yeah, and, and it pulls you in. I think you, you're probably more responsible for uh, all-nighters from people from the you know, 2013, 14, more responsible for more uh, sleepless nights of binge watching than <laughs> because of the music, right? I mean, obviously there's cliffhangers and everything, but music has is such a power. Obviously, that's why we both do it because it's just the most powerful thing in the world. Um, I, I want to get back to your, your grandmother as an accompanist for silent films because not a lot of composers writing today um, or even traditionally uh, did this, but this was a whole business and genre when we couldn't put sound to to the screen. And you've even been involved, I know, in a couple of The General and The Sunrise, A Song for Two Humans. Uh, but can you maybe talk about, and, and actually Shostakovich is, is a big name that we know was accompanying films, but that's the only person I can think of. Maybe you know some others, but could you maybe talk about how you would imagine your compositional process is you know, when, when you get the material you need to create what you need to create for films, how that is similar or different um, from what your grandmother and Shostakovich did? Yeah, this is this is the fun part about it. This is where technology enters, because in a lot of ways, it's disarmingly similar. And I, I did not know that my grandmother had done this until after she passed. I think it was when I was working on my first silent film score, which was the general. My my aunt told me, you know, your grandmother played. It's like, really? I had no idea. 
But, you know, modern film composer, you know, we sit in, I'm not in my studio right now, I'm in a hotel room, but, you know, we sit in front of our keyboard, we're looking up at the screen, and it's not unlike a silent movie pianist or organist, you know, just kind of watching the action, try to react mm-hmm. to it. Obviously, you know, when you're composing, there's multiple passes and you go back and you actually really work on ideas, but it's really fascinating to me that she did that. And part of, you know, we, we actually, I'm having a really fun week at Eastman because about uh, five or six years ago, my wife and I endowed what's called the Beale Institute at Eastman, which is a two-year program for film scoring, which we never really had a master's program at this wonderful school. Wow, great. This, this week we have ama- amazing, so we almost have a little mini mu- a film music festival, uh, Miriam Cutler, and, and there's a student orchestra here that is self-organized of Eastman students who, of course, at any conservatory are incredibly busy, but they want to play film music. And it's been just taken off over the last 10 years, but they are doing Miriam Cutler's score live to the documentary Ethel about Ethel Kennedy on Friday. And then on Thursday, uh, Tom Naziola, wonderful composer, another Eastman graduate, is they're performing a score of his for Busker Keaton's film, Sherlock Jr. This idea of music for film, especially where I am now uh, in Rochester, is such a part of the history of this town and this school. You know, George Eastman built this um, theater that we're celebrating with my commission on Saturday. It really has a silent movie house. This was in the early 20th century, the 1910s, I think, or well, the 20s, the 100-year anniversary was built in 1922. But the Eastman School, from its very beginnings, had part of its training was to train organists for playing for the silent movies. There, There's a room somewhere <laughs> over there where there's literally an organ console and a movie screen where they would project the movies and tra- wow. train the organists how to play. You know, and of course, in big cities, it wasn't always just a pianist. Sometimes it would be a full orchestra. So if New York City oh or here gosh. in Rochester or in Los Angeles, you'd also have an orchestra in, in the bigger cities. There'd be an orchestra in the pit. And they'd it wouldn't always be original music, but they would have like what my grandmother had, which would be a cue sheet of themes, songs from the day that, yeah. that maybe yeah, a, yeah. a yeah. music director would send out with a print and saying, here's the suggested playlist yeah. for these movies. That's cool. Yeah, because I um, somebody approached me about that um, a couple of years ago. Um, basically about like this old eight, you know, 1910s cowboys and Indians film. And he sent, I was like, wait, can we see have the music? And he sent, it was just a bunch of themes, just what you said. And, and, and yeah. I'm like, well, we have to, we, we can't just, you know, sit here and play this at a live concert. We need to have some arrangements and, like musicians don't think yeah. like that. At least most classical musicians these days. No, no. And it's interesting. I don't know what they sent you, but that would be called, a, yeah, it would be like a cue sheet. And that would be for the pianist usually. And they would know those tunes or they would probably know those tunes yeah. by heart. But that's where yeah. my grandmother's talents, I, I can see how she was just so perfectly trained for this. Because again, she could sit and improvise at the piano. She was totally comfortable with sort of winging it. And, uh, you know, yeah. this art of improvisation is, is just fun. Uh, there's a wonderful, there's a retired professor here by the name of Donald Hunsberger who, uh, used to lead what was called the Eastman Dryden Orchestra because, you know, the George Eastman House here is still oh, yeah. a wonderful collection yeah. of of silent movie. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the greatest collections, one of the best collections of, of old silent movie prints in the world, actually. And there's a theater there huh. near George Eastman's house where they we would do, uh, Donald would conduct concerts with the Dryden Orchestra and they would have these arrangements based on exactly what you said. But I remember doing a few of these as a student is, you know, we would we would just have the sheet music and he would say, OK, we're going to play from here to here and maybe repeat a couple of times and we'll go on to the next one. And it was sort of like building the plane as you fly it kind of stuff, which is fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's there's an element to live music, which is, with a film, which is so much more fun than the passive yeah, experience yeah. of just sitting in the theater. It's much more theatrical. It's much more immersive. You feel the energy of the air moving in the room, the performers. 
Yeah, and, and I and I have a story to share about that. Um, a few years ago, I went to see the Philadelphia Orchestra at Vale do a live concert version of E.T. And oh, wow. here I am, like I've I've been in front of orchestras for you know 20 years, like professional conductor. I had never, it's like I'd never seen a film before. Like I was literally yeah. blown away from the first, and, and I was so moved to tears um, just because the live orchestra was there. Um, and of course, Spielberg's film is incredible. And, and that's something I think you said about four or five years ago, you talked about how orchestras have to adapt, right? The, the future of the symphony orchestra is not written. The idea of playing film music, and you talked about this Eastman um, film score orchestra that let's put you know John Williams in front of you. And, and, and now in many ways, that prophecy has come true. Uh, you know, I just Saturday, we did a Star Wars concert of all, you know, no film, but all the yeah. Star Wars music from Lud Ludwig Göransson, obviously to, to John Williams. Right, and right. that sells more tickets than any concert and the audience just eats it up. And, yeah. and one thing I think that our listeners may be interested, you know, since you're on the show, you know, one of the challenges, I think, for the more regional orchestras, you know, we all want to play film music, you know, with the film there, but the costs are so prohibitive, um, which makes it almost impossible. And yeah. so I wonder, you know, and, and you can maybe share some of this stuff with me offline, but I just wonder if there's any, any films or kind of resources, you know, you might point people towards uh, who, who really want to do this, but, you know, can't spend, you know, I mean, I, th I believe the last time I checked to do a, I mean, and I'm not asking about Star Wars, but the last time to do like a Star Wars or Harry Potter is like, $60,000 for one concert or something like that. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about, about that. Yeah, I do. I mean, you sort of, you sort of talking my, talking my book here because you have them right to me because I got a bunch, you know, the silent films are great. Find, find a silent film score that you love because those, those, usually those rights are clearable and a lot less than that. My score for the general has been done quite a bit. I've done it. Leonard Slack and it's done it. I conducted it with Laco. I love silent movies because in a way, obviously, there's, you can't beat Star Wars or Harry Potter. Or, you know, like, listen, that's an event that everybody wants to come to. The only problem with those shows is that there's dialogue. And so in a way, uh, the silent movie, I, I love the silent movie projects because they really feature the music in a, in a really special way. Also, you can look for, I don't know, well, you know, this is, I, I guess I'm a little bit of an inventor or an entrepreneurial spirit of me, in me has done uh, I've also developed some live concert versions of things that aren't Star Wars that are documentaries. I think the first one that I did that, that are all that are all rentable and can be done. I I, I did a wonderful film Blackfish uh, about the orca whales. With and again the score the film has to have a score that's symphonic or that feels like it can justify its presence in a concert hall. But I I've done Blackfish live. Um, I've done um, the Biggest Little Farm live with orchestra two which is another beautiful documentary with this very very lyrical um kind of a hybrid guitars and and string orchestra score so you know um miriam has ethel now um but yeah look at look at what the kids are doing i guess and um that's one aspect you can look at look look out to look for movies that are maybe not don't might not have the rights attached to them that are so incredibly expensive that you like and maybe just reach out to the composer and say, hey, you know, is this possible to do? It really depends on who owns the film rights and how expensive they are. I'm, I'm friends with uh, the guy who did the wonderful film Marching with the Penguins. That's available. Yeah, but I, I don't know how affordable it is, though. Um, I think the rights okay. um, fee might be pretty, pretty expensive. So it really depends on the film. Yeah, I, I agree. But I will say, yeah, it's great to have the film up there. 
I also love what you did, just playing it as pure music. Because in a way, taking the music away from the film, out of context, and just playing it as part of a concert, I think it's really a really a wonderful program. Because people, in a way, then, then they're forced to use their imaginations a little bit. So it's a little bit more like the audience can engage in what you and I would call more real classical music listening, where you listen to a Mahler symphony or you listen to Beethoven and you sort of make the movie in your mind and your imagination. You know, one of the one of my most favorite programs I've ever had presented in my work was by a fellow Eastman colleague, uh, Stephen Alltop. We did a program quite a while ago uh, with the Champaign-Urbana Symphony at a wonderful theater and wonderful hall in Bloomington. And for that, we did a combination of my film music and my concert music. So we, I think we opened up oh, with wow. my overture to, overture to Pollock. And then I played my improvising trumpet concerto alternate route. And then second half, uh, we did, I did, a, I conducted a piece from House of Cards from Russia, and then they did my clarinet concerto. And then Stephen ended the concert with uh, the House of Cards suite, which is about a 20, from season one, which is about 15 minutes. And I loved that. That was a really successful concert because the, I loved the idea of taking film music in a way out of the ghetto of just one context and just let's throw it up on the stage with some other concert music. And that I think really is is wonderful because it's a way of further, I would say, um, furthering this passion I have and this trend, which certainly I can't take credit for this, but I, I definitely think this is the way the wind is blowing <laughs> and the way I'm trying to help it as much as I can in my little corner in the university. But just everything you're doing, all everything your generation is doing, like, you know, for, for symphonic music to, to live and to survive, we need a new repertoire to come in. That includes new music, like, you know, like what I've been recently doing with various pieces. But we also need to look outside of maybe the concert, the concert world for what, where's great music being made. And obviously, one of the rich areas we have is all this music being created for film and video games and you name it. Like there's so much music being created and there's a subset of that music, 5% or whatever, that's, that deserves a place in the concert hall. Well, let's, let's steal that and bring it in. Um, it's, really, it's really important, I think, in, ter in, in terms of keeping the concert hall relevant and also keeping the literature, um, keeping the, the canon of music expanding to be inclusive. You know, we're in this um, this era of inclusivity, which I think is fantastic. But sometimes we forget about inclusivity in terms of the, the sort of walls that exist between what people consider high art and low art. And I think one of the most important walls to break down is this idea that just because it's written for a commercial medium, that it cannot be artistic if it's done Honest, that it cannot have excellence. Of course, it can have excellence, but it's our job. It's our job to recognize that and to not punish it for being, uh, for having a, having its origin somewhere other than you know a pure artist in, in an ivory tower somewhere. Although I like that music too. I'm into concert, pure concert music as well. I'm just saying that I don't like that idea of a distinction. I don't like the idea of rules and genre rules as as terms of what what an audience is allowed to hear and and to be presented with. breaking the barriers and blurring the lines your entire life. And I'd like to make the transition to concert music on that note. You started obviously with your bass concerto. So you, you, you did concert music, you trained at Eastman. 
uh, but most of your career has been film music. And in the past five, six years, it seems like you've made that transition. Can you talk about how you apply that kind of storytelling aspect to music when you're writing, uh, you know, whatever it may be for, for choir, for string quartet, for example, the paper line shack that I think that I'd love to talk about in a few minutes when you're essentially creating the story and the music, is that too freeing? I mean, I, I know a lot of composers like restraints and like some amount of constrictions. Well, I will say one thing is like, there's, you know, being a successful film composer, you have to be very prolific and you have to be fast, really. You, ha- you can't be sitting around for days waiting for an idea when when they're waiting for the cues, you know. But the thing that makes it doable is the fact that, you, like you said, you have that stimulation. You have a scene in front of you with a beginning, a middle, and end, and a story that's baked in. And, and your job is to really be another choreography, a musical choreography that is a part of something that's already sort of been built. And I love that job. I still love it very much. You know, it's it's like playing in a band. I do feel like uh, the return to concert music has been really gratifying and definitely not as easy, but I like the fact that it's not as easy. I like the little, the fact that these pieces take a lot, often take a little longer to develop, longer to conceive of. And I, I, I don't know how to do them as quickly as I do with film, which is, I think, the essence of what you should be if you're an artist. I don't think being comfortable is a dangerous place to be as an artist, feeling like you know exactly how to do it. I like the idea of the challenge of a piece. And part of what I've loved in doing concert pieces is really to sort of extend out the boundaries of the places that I guess I put myself in artistically and to see what those new situations bring out in my in my music making, what I can discover about things that maybe I don't have the luxury to discover when I'm writing for film, you know, and it wouldn't be appropriate to do some of these explorations, you know. I obviously some of the pieces like the Salvage Men, uh, the Paperline Shack. There's text, so you have the ability of words. But you know, I've done several other things where I maybe borrow other aspects of a story. You know, I, I did a flute concerto for a wonderful Swedish flautist that we premiered in Minnesota several years ago, and in that case, it was very much a piece for her, and I I really wrote it to her taste and her personality and everything. Um, so sometimes I'll borrow from the person I'm writing for, and kind of that's my inspiration. Um, I did a wonderful, wonderfully themed commission for the newest symphony called The Great Circle, and that was all about the idea of, it wasn't really a climate change story, but it was about fires and floods that had sort of invaded uh, Southern California. So this idea of, for me, whether or not it's spelled out or not, I, I look for some story, I look for some way in. Sometimes it's more abstract than others, and I'm okay with it as abstract. I think part of the fun of doing concert works is it's not always necessary that you spell out to the audience what the story is. Hopefully, if you do your job well, the piece tells the story. It's in the music, and and people can hopefully get it from the work. I would love to go back. Um, You mentioned Salvage Men. You were inspired by Oscar Wilde, who was imprisoned for his homosexuality, and then he was released, and then he passed away fairly quickly thereafter. You talked about how this kind of inspired you to write this music, and this also brought up the idea of living with an uninvited guest. In 2007, you were diagnosed with um, multiple sclerosis, I think, right? And, yes. And you talk about how you talk about how music, and obviously, you know, diet, lifestyle. You made some changes, but music played such a, a strong role in your healing to where it's totally in remission, you created a program at the University of Rochester around music and medicine. Can, yeah, you, can you maybe much. just talk about the, the salvage men and how that led to your own personal journey in that regard? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think that really hastened my return to concert music. You know, when something happens in your body, it's a bit of a wake up call, you know. So for me, there was a new level of something pretty traumatic happening that definitely changed my abilities forever. I mean, even though it's in remission, I'm still anybody that has MS, you know, cured. So it was an uninvited guest that's still with me. So part of what you do is you learn to live with that. But during the early years of any, I have a good friend that was just diagnosed. The early years are quite, quite terrifying because you don't know, first of all, what's going to happen. I mean, I, my son was still a young teenager living with us. I was really in the middle of my career. And of course you can imagine the fear and anxiety that can produce and sadness and grief. And so, um, I, I realized uh, part of what I wanted to do with that piece, and that was really the first concert piece I wrote, I guess, after a long hiatus of raising our son and being very busy and as a film composer, which is a wonderful problem to have or wonderful vocation and life mission to have both those things. But I realized that it was time to do something more personal and write, write, a, write a piece that dealt with my own catharsis and emotional journey of what had happened and how how can I rash, how can I go through this and ironically enough I was doing a film for um, Al Pacino at the time that involved Oscar Wilde it was called um, Wild Salomane and so I knew very well of Oscar Oscar Wilde's personal story which is quite tragic and this some of the beautiful writing he did from from prison one of these in which I took a small section for the opening movement of the piece the second bit of text I found a wonderful a contemporary poet Pulitzer Prize winner Kay Ryan, whose four poems comprise the rest of the cycle. And it was really cathartic to write that piece because in, in the writing of it, and really for me, you know, music is part of my therapy and it's part of what I do every day. And it's sort of like my own personal meditation and way, I think, way forward. I think I know it's one of the ways I keep my brain healthy and active and also the one of the ways in which I connect spiritually and uh, center myself. And I think this is important for everybody who's living. I mean, we all live with something. We all have some sort of challenge that that greets us and and uh, i have to credit my wife joan beale who was really instrumental in helping also spearhead this uh, music and medicine program we have between the university of rochester medical school and the eastman school um, but this whole idea of music as a as a healing um vocation not only for the listener but also for the performers i, I guess the reason I, I gravitated to choral music and, and wanted to write this piece is i remember the night i was diagnosed with this very scary news and trying to figure out what my life was going to be. I, I was, uh, had already discovered Eric Whitaker's music. And I remember I put on one of his records at the time and just listened to that choral music. And it just something about the sound of those human voices was, had an amazing centering and calming effect on me. And I still, I still love choral music. I mean, my wife is a wonderful singer and I love writing for the voice. So that idea of writing, writing for the voice, um, it really is sort of like the pure, the purest instrument, you know, there's nothing in between the performer and the sound. There's no instrument. It's just the human body is the instrument. So there's something incredibly powerful, I think, of singing, choral singing as a medium, both for the listener and for the performer and the composer too. And then speaking of your wife, uh, Joan, it sounds like you've been able to kind of integrate the family into most of your career. Your son is a jazz bassist and I know played on, on House of Cards and probably some other things. And you collaborated with Joan on the Paper Line Shack. And we talked a little about your grandmother and her piano playing and, and her influence. But this is about your great grandmother and texts that you found, so, yeah. you know, who grew up in Idaho, uh, raised six kids on her own. And I love this piece of music. And I assume it's also for string quartet. It's for orchestra, but there's also a version for string quartet. 
Um, and you worked with Hilla Plitman, who is just a phenomenal voice to, I mean, I mean, there's a little bit of Knoxville summer of 1915 in this, in this piece as well. And I know how terribly difficult that style is to really sing and how specific of a voice you need to make that work. But can you talk about that whole project? And I, I'd also be curious um, to hear how you all determined what what of her diary, because this was your great-grandmother Della's diaries that were discovered. And how did you kind of determine what to sift through to create a narrative out of it? Yeah. So so Joan and I were in the middle of a move about uh, maybe 15 years ago. And um, I was closing up a box of memorabilia or something and out popped these pages of diary. Uh, it was a memoir that actually my mom had sent me that was about eight pages that Della had written towards the end of her life about her experience for her kids. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. But Joan, being such a great writer herself and, and tuned into this kind of stuff, started reading these pages. And she got to one paragraph where Della talks about this, this uh, critical moment where her husband, Franklin, dies in Idaho when they're sort of moved to this homestead in the middle of nowhere on acreage in Idaho. And she writes these words, uh, I've got them right here so I can remember them. She says, the sun was shining as I looked out, the sweet peas he'd planted, her husband that is, were blooming. The garden looked the same, but everything had changed. And it was just so beautiful. You think about this woman, uh, the way she could talk about it. It was, and Joan said, wow, this is an opera. This is a short story. This is like she saw something very quintessential and mythical about the way she wrote about that. And it's true, she has this wonderful voice. As a writer, Della that is. So flash forward over 10 years later, and I received this commission from Leonard Slack, and, and uh, I thought about Hila because she has worked with Leonard before, and it was for the St. Louis Symphony. And I was thinking more like maybe a modern, I wanted a strong female character for Hila because I love her singing, and I worked with her on a film previously and heard her sing other things, including John Corigliano's Bob Dylan settings. And so oh, I was wow. thinking more like maybe Malala or somebody like that or somebody provocative from more contemporary story. And then I, we were out on a walk with Joan. I said, hey, Joan, you remember those diary pages? What about that? And it was just like the light bulbs went off for both of us, you know. And, and she, she has this really wonderful, humble, but very specific way of writing that I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not offended. I'm actually very flattered by the comparison to Knoxville because it is very similar in the sense that obviously the the setting of the songs is very in that genre, very simple, chambery, more like a chambery size. But also there's a way in which the language is written, which is very, it's sort of conversational and it's sort of folksy. And, but it's very, but, the, but underneath that is this really deep emotion. And so in going through these pages, I think Joan and I read through them independently. And then we sort of had a meeting together, kind of comparing notes on what, what we thought the best bits were. And I think there was quite a fair amount of agreement on those um, between us, except for the end. When we got to the end, um, we didn't really have a final movement. So Joan really beautifully sort of condensed some of the ideas in Della's pages and really created the final, the text for the final movement, which was um, My Heart, which is sort of a summary, sort of a summary, if you can imagine what Della would, if she would sit back knowing that her memoirs had been turned into a song cycle, what would she tell us about Amazing. them? And so that's where Joan came up with Incredible. that beautiful way of sort of closing out the piece. My dearest children, I leave you with this story.
In our garden and in my heart, you know, those two final movements, um, you know, really bring that symphonic structure to a close in such a, a moving way. It's just such a beautiful depiction of this woman um, you know, losing her husband and reminiscing on it. I, I'm also curious: is um, Hilla the one who, the only one who sings it, or have others sang it, or are there any plans I, to have other other sopranos sing? It? it is not exclusive to um, Hilla now, so we, we're sort of waiting for the record to be released. But that's part of the reason I've created these other versions. We have a string quartet and soprano version. We have a piano reduction version. A good friend of ours, Kathleen Rowland, who is a professor at Syracuse, really thought it's a good piece for young young sopranos. I think it'd be fantastic for a young color tour of voice. You know, it's obviously the story yeah. of a young woman. Yeah. So, uh, no, absolutely. We're hoping that, that, it'll, that it'll get sung by as many people as possible. The string quartet version was fun because this was sort of a... a uh, a version that I created so that we could do it live uh, in, with the rest of the album, called, which is called, now it's out, it's called The Paper Line Shack. And uh, it's on my mind because we're doing this in Los Angeles in, in next month on a, uh, at Zipper Hall on, on October 11th. Uh, so if anybody hearing this is near California, I'd love for you to come hear this. The rest of the record is New Hollywood String Quartet performing my string quartet, Things Unsing. So we created a one-act, basically, program where we do the whole album live. We start with the string quartet. And then Hila comes out and I conduct and we do the song cycle with string quartet. And I guess the discovery about that is that I love the chamber orchestra version. It's, and I'd love to have more opportunities for that. Obviously we're coming out of COVID. So it's like a lot of things, a lot of, you know, we're waiting our turn. Let's put it that way for, for, for to do it more with orchestras. <laughs> know. You know how this seasons get programmed years in advance, but um, yeah. so we have interest, but we haven't, been able to do it uh, live again with orchestra, but thank God we did it before COVID with Eastman Philharmonia and Leonard Slacken. And thank, thankfully, Leonard said when we were going after the St. Louis premiere, he said, "You know, we ought to record this while we're at Eastman." So that's how the idea of the record was was born. But um, going back to the string quartet version, it really condenses beautifully for string quartet. It really works on that level. It's almost even more intimate. Um, and I have to give a lot of credit, obviously, to the players. But uh, Hila, when she does this live, it really takes on something I never knew it could. This is how it's so fun to see what performers can bring to your material. But, you know, the way she performs it, both with orchestra or with string quartet, it's almost like a little one act opera. You know, she's just got a great acting ability and she sort of moves around the stage and has a few props. And it's just like you really feel like you're you're following this woman's journey through through her life. That's amazing. And the album is Jeff Beal, The Paper Line Shack. Uh, it, it's available wherever you get your music. And I just wanted to give a shout out to the, almost the bonus on this album, which is Things Unseen. For somebody who knows anything about the music of you as a composer, this is like abstract music. So I, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts were about writing something with no dramatic impetus. Yeah, it was really fun. I actually wrote this quite a, quite a while ago, but in, in after having the Paper Line Shack recorded and then COVID happening, I was looking for a second half to the record. So I, I went back to the String Quartet, which was actually originally a commission for the Ying String Quartet at the Eastman School. So I, you know, I love writing concert music. And um, in this case, I created some little stories for myself. The movements are ghosts, spirits, angels, and gnomes. A lot of this is subconscious, so I, 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 I'm a very improvisatory thinker. So, you know, the pieces, pieces happen as I create them. You know, it's, it's not unlike maybe an abstract expressionist painter. This piece is very more composed. It's more like what you would think of as West, you know, classical composition. You have a lot of counterpoint, a lot of moving voices. But the, the thing that I 
that I realized that I was writing, I was trying to get to with this piece was something very personal in the sense that, you know, I, I, in looking around at the world, I, I've come to the conclusion that we are basically living in what I would call a post-religious society. That doesn't mean there are, there isn't religion and people don't practice religion, but in terms of the way our daily lives are, it's very secularized and we don't have a lot of places where we can go and, and really connect to our spiritual side. And I don't mean that in a dogmatic way. I mean that in a more universal way. And because of that, I feel like music as a language and, and by extension, the concert hall has really become a really important place for human experience. It's the one place we can go is shut off our phones and have, have an experience. And for me as a listener and a creator, that's always what I've stri strived to do with my music is to try to somehow conjure up the imagination and um, not to get too woo woo with you. I guess maybe this is the Northern Californian part of me coming out, but just the way in which oh, music I'm in Boulder. Really it's okay. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go, man. You know, have a joint and come along with me. Right. Uh, but I'm just kidding about the joint thing, but no, I listen, this is important. This I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sort of making a little fun of myself, but I'm not because I believe in this stuff. And you know, this whole idea of, of the neglected, it's like the shadow that we neglect in Jungian terms is, is going to rear its head in ways, strange ways if we don't acknowledge it. So, um, this piece is in a, a lot of ways about that. It's about just trying to think about those, those languages, those, those characters, as they manifest um, in someone's life, in someone's consciousness, and and give them give them a musical voice. It's chamber music, so I love the four equal parts idea of a string quartet, and so it really is much. Mm -hmm. It's very it's very it's also about dialogue and conversation. I also think it's like a good string quartet is like a good dinner party where there's this amazing conversation that goes six different directions, and everybody speaks at the right time, and it just mm -hmm. takes you on this ride. Well, thank you, Jeff, for creating all these incredibly inspiring conversations. And I think it was about 10 or 20 years ago. I don't remember who said it, but they said, Mozart is my God. And I think what you said about music and this idea of a post-religious society, I think religion and spirituality kind of you know, work, uh, you know, kind of equalize and balance each other. And sometimes one overtakes the other. And I think that that spiritual element is something that all of us crave as humans and going to the concert hall, you know, experiencing the music. I think that's what people are looking for, especially after COVID where we were separated for so long and your music, it fits so many, it, it checks so many boxes in terms of what people are looking for from a dramatic perspective, from a spiritual perspective, from an entertainment pr perspective. And you're able to 
across so many genres so effectively and in such a and in such a spot on way. And I just wanted to thank you for uh, what you've brought to all these different genres: concert music, film music, chamber music, uh, silent film music, you name it. So uh, it's been a it's been a f- such a great time speaking with you, and I'm looking forward to uh, to sharing your music and hearing about your future endeavors. Thank you so much, Devin. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on our third season of One Symphony. Thanks to Jeff Beal for sharing his music and wealth of knowledge. Thanks to the New Hollywood String Quartet, Hilla Plitman, Leonard Slatkin, and the Eastman Philharmonia and Super Train Records for making this episode possible. You can check out Jeff's music, including his new album, The Paper Lined Shack, wherever you listen to your music, and online at jeffbeal.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music.